From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Our intelligence community and their analysis are your eyes and ears. If you don't believe them, if you don't pay attention to it, you're flying blind. That's Jay Johnson, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. I speak with him about running DHS, border security, election interference, and what it means when elected officials don't trust our intelligence agencies, and whether being the designated survivor is as glamorous as you think. That's coming up, but first, let's get to your questions. So we're taping this Q&A portion uh, late Wednesday morning, as we always do, and God knows what is going to happen between the time that I'm taping this and you listen to it. But a lot's happened already. Let's talk about that. Obviously, a lot of people have been asking me on Twitter, uh, my family members have been asking me about the raid of Michael Cohen, Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, his office, his residence, and even his hotel room. So a couple of things first. There are a lot of times, uh, both in social media, on Twitter, and on the show, when everyone's up in arms and, and freaking out about some new news breaking from the Mueller investigation, where I say, I don't see what the fuss is. For example, there was uh, breathless reporting some time ago that Bob Mueller had issued a subpoena. Oh my God, that's what prosecutors do. So sometimes news is hyped overly, and it's not such a big deal. This is not one of those times. The search and raid of Michael Cohen's office, hotel, and home is a really big deal. The search that's authorized by a judge and always has to be authorized by a judge of a lawyer's office and a lawyer's materials is really significant. It happens from time to time. It is not uh, unheard of. I oversaw an office where we did it from time to time because sometimes lawyers commit crimes too. And sometimes lawyers commit crimes along with their clients. And just like no one else is above the law, lawyers are not above the law either. And you cannot always hide behind what is otherwise the sacrosanct principle of attorney-client privilege to prevent any action being taken against you, including investigative action. So the thing to understand about the raid on Michael Cohen is it's a big deal. It means something significant has happened, uh, and it's not unprecedented. I will also say that if I were still the U.S. attorney when this was going on and I were asked to approve it, I would want to know that there was a lot of evidence, not just the bare minimum you need to show probable cause, that there is evidence of a crime in any particular location. And the regulations actually provide, because it's so sensitive to search a lawyer's home or or, or office, that the personal approval of the U.S. attorney overseeing the investigation is required after consultation, whatever that means, with folks at Maine Justice in Washington. And so it's a big deal. I think if you're going to undertake an action like this against a lawyer generally, and in this case, the lawyer for the president of the United States in such a highly charged atmosphere with such high stakes present, you want to make sure that there's a decent chance that you're close to being able to charge Michael Cohen. Uh, Again, I say this with all the usual caveats, but the fact that they took this dramatic action, I think means that Michael Cohen has has a great likelihood of being charged criminally. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens even by the time you listen to this podcast. The last time someone associated with the Mueller investigation had a no-knock raid done on his home was Paul Manafort. And some weeks later, he was charged with a crime. And I wouldn't be surprised if Michael Cohen was charged. Now the question is, uh, who did the raid? Who authorized the raid? And there's been a lot of conflicting reporting. And I was a little skeptical at first that it wasn't Bob Mueller authorizing the raid. But the reporting seems to be, as of my taping now on Wednesday, that through some procedure by which Bob Mueller found other evidence of a crime relating to what Michael Cohen was engaging in. The best reporting that I've seen suggests that he went to Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, who then basically cut out this part of the investigation and basically referred it to the office that I used to lead, the Southern District of New York. And the first thing I will say off the bat is that the people who are overseeing and handling the search and the investigation of Michael Cohen, if it's in fact being led by my old office, is being done by line prosecutors, uh, most of whom I either hired uh, and or promoted. And so I have, I will admit, a tremendous bias here in favor of their intelligence, their professionalism, their dedication, and their integrity. And if they're doing a thing like this, I've got to believe that in the same way they did when I was there, they crossed every T and they dotted every I because there's a lot at stake here. Now the question is, who's leading up the investigation in the Southern District of New York? And so initially, there was a lot of talk about Jeff Berman who is the interim United States attorney who was handpicked by President Trump after he removed me and then after he removed June Kim, my successor, my immediate successor. Jeff Berman is a Republican. 
Jeff Berman has uh, contributed money to the Trump campaign. Jeff Berman was interviewed personally by Donald Trump. And it may be for all of those reasons and additional reasons we're not aware of. The reporting also suggests that he has recused himself from the case. So I believe that to be true. I don't know if he had to recuse himself or just thought in the interests of the optics that he would recuse himself. Um, There are career people also in my old office uh, who advise on ethics matters, who have been there for 20, 30 years. Same is true for people at Maine Justice. So Jeff Berman decided to recuse himself. So now who's who's running the show? It's a great question. Uh, I believe it would be the deputy U.S. attorney, who's a guy by the name of Rob Kazami. Rob Kazami, I should tell everyone, is a personal friend of mine uh, and a professional colleague of mine. He's an alum of the U.S. attorney's office. He was there as a career prosecutor for many years, then went to private practice, uh, and then went to work as the chief of the enforcement division at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And in that capacity, we worked in parallel with each other, prosecuting, among other things, all those insider trading cases you may have read about. So Rob Kazami was a, was a partner and has now come back to SDNY full circle as the number two and is probably the acting U.S. attorney in charge of the Michael Cohen investigation. And another important point, aside from the fact that I think that he's a professional and a, and a good person and has a lot of integrity, he is a, a Republican. He's a known Republican. Uh, he was a supporter of George W. Bush. Uh, he actually spoke at the Republican National Convention some years ago. Uh, and the point of that is only to say that it is hard for someone to criticize anything going on in the Michael Cohen investigation that Rob Kazami is probably leading as being political. Because like everyone else, it seems, who's involved and overseeing everything having to do with the Russia investigation and now the Michael Cohen investigation, is a member of the president's own party. So a lot of this nonsense, which frankly, uh, I'm getting kind of sick of, uh, and you probably are already sick of, Bob Mueller is a Republican, Rod Rosenstein is a Republican, Jeff Berman is a Republican, Jeff Sessions is a Republican. Rob Kazami, who may now have an important role, is also a Republican. So I wish people would cut out this political nonsense. It's not about politics. It's about the rule of law. And people are following, as far as I can tell, to the letter, the policies of the Justice Department. Here's one more thing I want to, I want to say about a search, whether it's of a lawyer or, or anyone else, quite frankly. Just because there's probable cause to believe that you know someone committed some crime, let's say there's probable cause to believe that Preet Bharara committed a crime, that does not allow prosecutors and agents to go search every place that I go, every premise that belongs to me. You actually have to show, and it's a difficult showing, uh, with fresh probable cause, recent in time probable cause, not only that there's a belief that Preet Bharara committed a crime, but that there is evidence in support of such a crime likely to be at each of the premises. So just because uh, Michael Cohen may be suspected of a crime doesn't mean you can search his hotel room, you, and it tells you a lot about how much this investigation has progressed, they would have had to show to a judge in a serious way that there was reason to believe that there were fruits of the crime or evidence of the crime at his hotel room, which may mean that he's been under surveillance for a significant period of time. It may mean that they have, been, uh, they have other communications and knowledge to show that there's actually items relevant and probative at the hotel room. It is not an easy thing to show. Uh, we've had a lot of debates when I was a U.S. attorney in the office, uh, knowing that we had sufficient probable cause to search someone's office where perhaps the crimes were committed, it is a very different matter and a much bigger deal to be able to show that there also uh, is evidence at someone's home. And it tells me again that Michael Cohen seems to be in a a hell of a lot of trouble. So that's the sort of basic overview of how I'm thinking about the raid on Michael Cohen. And there are a lot of questions about it, and let's, let's get to some of them. Here's a question from Twitter user Tobit, who writes... At Preet Bharara, how does raiding a lawyer's office work with attorney-client privilege? So it's a great question and one that people have been talking about a lot. As I said, doing a search of a lawyer's office is a big deal. And because it's a big deal, there are explicit uh, guidelines about how you're supposed to go about it. You want to be very, very sensitive to the attorney-client privilege. But it doesn't mean you're above the law. So number one, you have to get the approval all the way to the top of the U.S. Attorney's Office in consultation with the criminal division in Washington, D.C. to make sure there are uh, not easier ways or less intrusive ways of getting that evidence, for example, by subpoena. So typically, you would, you'd want to have a showing internally uh, that documents are being destroyed or that a subpoena will not be complied with or time is of the essence or some other such showing uh, to justify using such an extraordinarily intrusive action. Second, you want to make sure that you continue to protect the attorney-client privilege. So uh, you have what is called, depending on your jurisdiction and what the nomenclature culture is in your office, something called a clean team or a taint team. Um, So you have 
sometimes lawyers and investigators, who will never have anything to do ultimately with the investigation, with the underlying investigation, who take great care in the search itself and then later in working through the take from the search to see what appears to be attorney-client privilege. And often there'll be a back and forth with the lawyer for the person being searched as well to keep away from, you know, behind what we call a wall, to keep away from the underlying investigators and prosecutors in the investigation, things that are attorney-client privilege. And then you maintain a separation, a very serious separation that's monitored and, and, um, and complies with all ethical requirements, the material uh, and the knowledge of the people who did the, the you know, taint or clean review from the people who are actually going to pursue potential charges against the person whose premises were searched. I know that sounds complicated because it is complicated and it's very labor-intensive, but we have procedures in place to make sure that no attorney-client privilege is violated. Now, separate apart from that, I want to say two things. One is a lot of things that happen uh, and a lot of things that are said, even if they're said and done by a lawyer, are not protected by the attorney-client privilege. Uh, Michael Cohen, for example, reportedly did a lot of things that you wouldn't consider legal work. Uh, There are reports that he liked to brag about the fact that he was Donald Trump's fixer, uh, that he was Ray Donovan, which is a great show on Showtime, which has not advertised with us yet for some reason. But you want to make sure that your lawyer is not engaging in thuggery and intimidation uh, and fixing your legal problems through extrajudicial, non-legal, sometimes criminal means. So if, if Michael Cohen was intimidating people, whether it's Stormy Daniels or anyone else, uh, or advising Trump on business uh, or any other such thing that was not legal advice, that's not covered by the attorney-client privilege. Like mobsters all the time, and I don't know if I regret making the comparison to mobsters or not, time will tell, but mobsters all the time would try to shield all of their conversations and discussions and business dealings by having the conciliary, conciliary, depending on how you want to pronounce it, in the room. And it was a you know well-known ploy to try to shield everything. But if that lawyer, uh, simply by virtue of having a law degree, could prevent anything from being discovered, then the rule of law would not be served. So that's point one. Point two is there is an exception in, in a way for law enforcement to pierce the attorney-client privilege, and that occurs in the case of something called the crime-fraud exception. So if you're, you might imagine that common sense tells you that the law should allow for a piercing of the attorney-client privilege if the lawyer is a crook in cahoots with the client. You want to be able to make sure that people who are doing bad things together are able to be held accountable and able to be prosecuted. Um, I can't say it any better than Justice Cardozo, one of our one of our greatest jurists in America, once said it this way, quote, the attorney-client privilege takes flight if the relation is abused. A client who consults an attorney for advice that will serve him in the commission of a fraud will have no help from the law. He must let the truth be told, close quote. That about sums it up. So a lot of stuff is not attorney-client privilege, even if you're a lawyer. And then even if it is attorney-client privilege, if it's in furtherance of a crime, it's not privileged either. Hi, Preet. My name is Ryan Campy. I'm calling you from Hoboken. I'm a civil litigator, and I have a question regarding the Cohen warrant. Uh, as I understand it, the warrant resulted from a referral by the special counsel to the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District. Wouldn't that mean that the investigation would be handled by SDNY and continue even if Trump succeeded in closing down the special counsel's investigation? Thanks for taking my call. Keep up the great work. Ryan from Hoboken, thanks for your question. Yes, I think you are absolutely correct. And one of the great consequences of this piece of an investigation being chopped off and given to my old office, that as I've said many times, is incredibly independent and will go where the facts and law take them, is that no matter what happens to Bob Mueller, that investigation should proceed. And maybe it'll proceed to nothing because there's not enough evidence to bring a charge. And if there's not, then no charge should be brought. But you know, this is the first time we're seeing some offshoot from the Mueller investigation that looks like it won't be stopped or can't be stopped even by some action that would be, I think, outrageous on the part of Donald Trump, namely the firing of Bob Mueller, directly or indirectly. Of course, if charges are brought or about to be brought, uh, the president still has the ability to pardon anyone, Michael Cohen or others who may be in the, in the crosshairs. But I don't see a way legitimately or even pragmatically that you can shut down a separate SDNY investigation once it has started, and and boy, it has started. So let me close the, the Q&A session by talking about the one question that's on everyone's mind um, and the thing that everyone's worried about. Will Bob Mueller be fired? Well, before he can be fired, the question is, by what process can he be fired? And you may have seen this week, 
the uh, spokesperson for the president, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, stood at the podium at the White House. And when asked the question, does the president think he can fire Bob Mueller? Her answer was, the president believes that he has the authority and power to fire Bob Mueller. So that's interesting. Uh, I, I believe that Sanders says a lot of things from the podium that are demonstrably false. She was very careful not to say that the president does have the authority, but as she does often, her own elocution now is careful. And she says, the president believes he has the authority. And the president, as we've seen over the course of many months, believes many things that are also demonstrably false. So what's the answer to the question? Does the president have the authority directly to fire Bob Mueller? Well, the relevant regulations sometimes are worth taking a look at. And I happen to have the relevant regulation sitting in front of me, which talks about the general powers of the special counsel. And I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's very short. The special counsel may be disciplined or removed from office only by the personal action of the attorney general, the personal action of the attorney general. It goes on to say the attorney general may remove a special counsel and then enumerate some bases. They include misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause. And it also says the attorney general shall inform the special counsel in writing of the specific reason for his or her removal. So these regulations are in place to afford some modicum of protection and independence for the special counsel, which no one else essentially in the Justice Department enjoys. Case in point, me. United States attorneys, attorneys general, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, all can be fired. Uh, they can't be fired for a corrupt purpose. That could be a problem if it was a you know racial discrimination or in exchange for a bribe. But generally speaking, they are at-will employees, political appointees of the president, and they can be fired at any time and they also have the constitutional right thereafter to start a podcast. Now, there are some people who might argue that it is not appropriate to put this kind of limitation on the president. Because if you're a member of the executive branch, the theory goes, the president should be able to fire you and have his own team, uh, particularly if you don't have civil service protection, which the special counsel doesn't have. But these regulations are in place, and these regulations have to be followed. And if I were Bob Mueller, and the President of the United States called me and said, thank you for your service, we no longer need you, and you've been a terrible special counsel. Having looked at this regulation, if I were Bob Mueller, I would say thank you very much, but until someone who I believe by the regulation is authorized to fire me by taking personal action, uh, you know, personal action by the Attorney General, I'm going to keep coming to work. And in this case, obviously, Jeff Sessions is recused, so the Attorney General for these purposes is Rod Rosenstein. And then you might be at an impasse, but I don't believe that Bob Mueller would pack up his bags if the president told him he was fired. So how does the president go about removing Bob Mueller then? Well, he could get someone who was in the position of the attorney general to do it. Rod Rosenstein doesn't seem inclined to do so. He's been very vocal about protecting Bob Mueller. He apparently oversaw and personally steered a portion of this investigation to the Southern District of New York. So it's not going to be him. I guess you could fire him and put someone more pliable in place or hope that the next person in line, who I believe is a solicitor general, who might be more pliable and might take an order from the president to do the firing. And the other possibility is you just rescind the regulations. And there's a little bit of a debate based on conversations I've had with people about how easily that's done. I don't think the president can just sort of order it to be done. I think the he could tell the attorney general to start a process by which regulations would be rescinded. But I think it has to follow a particular process. I think it could be challenged in the courts. So as far as I can tell, until these regulations are rescinded or someone who is in the chain of command appropriately in the Justice Department decides to fire Bob Mueller, he's sitting tight. However, we're in crazy times. And I don't know what kind of advice Sarah Sanders is talking about that causes Trump to think he has the authority directly to fire Bob Mueller. But as I said a minute ago, it would be an odd and unusual circumstance and a weird standoff if the president claimed based on some legal authority that I'm not aware of and that are not present in these regulations that he has the power to fire Bob Mueller. And Bob Mueller reads the regulations differently, how that's going to work. And that's a standoff I would prefer not to see. My guest this week is former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson. He served as the head of DHS under President Obama. He was also the general counsel for the Department of Defense and an alum of my old office, the Southern District of New York. We cover a lot of ground. Guantanamo Bay, prosecuting terrorists, border security, Russian interference in past and future elections, and his role as the very first person to resign from the Trump administration. That's coming up. Stay tuned. 
Hey everyone, on April 26, I'll be recording a live episode of Stay Tuned at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. My guest is the amazing Bassem Youssef, a world-renowned comedian known as the John Stewart of the Arab world. He used to be a surgeon, now he's a satirist. He's hilarious, smart, witty, and has an unbelievably courageous story. You don't want to miss it. Get tickets for Stay Tuned through Ticketmaster or ApolloTheater.com slash calendar. And because I love my podcast listeners most of all, for a limited time, get $20 off each ticket when you enter code PREET20. That's PREET20. I'll see you there. Secretary Johnson, thanks for joining us. Preet, thanks for having me. It's really great to have you. We have so much to talk about. I don't know how we're going to get through I'm looking it forward to our discussion. You've had, you've had so many jobs, both in the private sector and in the public sector. I can't keep a job. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> well, tell me about it. Uh, we'll get to all of them, I think. But what was your favorite job in public service and why? Well, funny you ask. The best job I've ever had in public service was being an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. Oh, that's great to hear. I I thought you might like to hear that. (laughs) I was hired by Rudy Giuliani in 1988. I was there for three years. I did public corruption cases. I tried 12 cases in three years, argued 11 appeals. And the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan at the time was really an extraordinary collection of people. You had Jim Comey, Louis Free, Fran Townsend, then Fran Fragos, Dave Kelly, Pat Fitzgerald, Ken Weinstein, David Fine, Deidre Daly, a really impressive group of people who went on to be U.S. attorneys, career prosecutors, main justice, judges. Cabinet officials. Cabinet officials, one or two, two FBI directors. And it was by far the best job I ever had in public service as a young lawyer learning how to try a case, always in court doing the right thing for law enforcement and for criminal justice. And I'm glad I had the experience, and it's been the offshoot for almost everything else I've done since. Let's jump to your time in the Department of Defense. You at one point served as general counsel to the Air Force? Correct. Under Bill Clinton? Correct. And then under President Obama, you served for a while as the general counsel to the Department of Defense? Four years. How many lawyers at the Department of Defense? Good question. Most people can't fathom the answer to You'd this You'd think question. maybe three or four. You'd think maybe three or four hundred. I ask students in classes, how many lawyers do you think there are in the Department of Defense? So everyone who's listening, why don't you take a mental guess? Three or four hundred. It's actually about 11,000. Okay, so why on earth does the Department of Defense need 11,000 lawyers? And how much do the lawyers get in the way? The Department (laughs) of Defense is by far the largest agency of our government. It is one of the largest ministries of defense in the world. And there's something like 3 million people in the Department of Defense. And so the 11,000 lawyers consist mostly of JAGs, lawyers in uniform. And that number, 11,000, includes guard and reserve. So it is literally true that I probably ran the largest law department in the whole United States for four years when I was general counsel. So why did you want that job? Interesting question. In 1998, let's turn back the clock to Bill Clinton's administration, I was offered really out of the blue the job of Air Force General Counsel. That was a presidential appointment, Senate confirmed, and I served for the last two years of the Clinton administration. Six years later, I met Barack Obama, candidate Barack Obama, became involved in his campaign, his transition, and then he asked me if I would be General Counsel of the Department of Defense. And it was a really critical time in 2009, 2010, 11, 12, to be the senior legal official for the Department of Defense. We had lots of very important complex issues like targeted lethal force, our counterterrorism operations in places like Yemen and Somalia, getting bin Laden, uh, use of drones, law of war detention at Guantanamo Bay, and the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2010 reforming the military commission system at Guantanamo Bay. So it was a fascinating, interesting, and important time to be there, and I'm glad I I'm glad Not I a lot of challenges. Not a lot of challenges. <laughs> was, I, want to get to, I want to get to some of those because they're complicated, difficult. What was the, the most fraught, difficult of those issues for you during your time? Guantanamo Bay. The closure of it, which, Just which never the, happened. The legal issues associated with law of war detention the trial and prosecution of detainees at Guantanamo Bay, the 
issues were in many respects novel, but also in many respects very traditional. Throughout, we sought to apply, and I, I encouraged our legal community to do this, sought to apply traditional law of war principles to what we were doing in our counterterrorism operations in a modern-day time frame against a non-conventional enemy. For example, there was the issue of the detention of a member of a terrorist organization who also happens to be a U.S. citizen, which was litigated in the courts when it came to detention, but also when it came to targeted lethal force. And so I advocated that we apply traditional principles. And if you go back to the case of Quirin, 1942 Supreme Court decision during World War II. Supreme Court said that a U.S. citizen can defect to the enemy and, if so, should be treated like all other enemy combatants. That's just a a small sense of some of the issues that went into the thinking about law of war detention, Guantanamo Bay, and and, and so forth. So can I ask you about the closure? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people for good reason, think that Guantanamo Bay should be closed. There are some people who think otherwise, and you know they have reasons, too, that are not illegitimate. Do you think it was a mistake for the president right off the bat to say he intended to close Guantanamo Bay within a year because it was impractical? Well, if you, it's interesting. If you ask most people, do you believe we should close Guantanamo Bay, which represents a black mark on American prestige? They would say yes. Well, that's a loaded question. Okay, right. Well, here's the other loaded question. (laughs) I'm going to ask you Do you believe that we should close this detention facility offshore and bring all these terrorists to the continental U.S.? You're going to get a very different answer. And public support for closing Guantanamo Bay was probably at its peak the moment Barack Obama took office. Right. And we actually had made considerable progress in meeting his deadline to close the facility in a year. We had found an alternate facility in Illinois. Right, I remember that. We had found a congressional delegation that didn't, that wasn't vehemently opposed to it. Led by, led by Senator Durbin. In Illinois, yes. And so we had done the hard work, but then events kind of spiraled against us. There was the the attempted bombing over the Detroit airport. The, the under, so-called underwear bomber. The so-called underwear bomber. There was the announcement that we were going to try the 9-11 defendants here in Manhattan, which I supported. As as, as did I. (laughs) Politically, of course you did. Politically, support for closing Guantanamo began to erode. Do you think there's any legitimate reason for the argument that Guantanamo be be kept open for people who are enemy combatants? In other words, I'm not saying if you're asking if you agree with it, um, and I don't agree with it either. Mm -hmm. But do you credit any of the arguments, and do you think they're, they're made in good faith? Well, I very much agree with and support the principle of law of war detention. Law of war detention, in other words, holding on to an enemy combatant for the duration of the conflict. You know, you, we, and armies capture and kill enemies. So when you capture somebody, you've got to have some place to send them. Right. The challenge when you're dealing with an unconventional enemy, a terrorist organization, is when does the conflict end? When does that law of war detention authority evaporate. And also, who is an enemy combatant? And who is an enemy combatant? That, too, can be a challenge. So much of my time, when I was general counsel of the Department of Defense, in doing the legal review for targeted lethal force for some of our counterterrorism operations, was centered around the question, is the, is the objective a member of a terrorist organization that we have legal authority to go after? And the same question arises when you're dealing with the detention context. So in the habeas cases brought by Guantanamo detainees, the courts would have to grapple with the very same question. And I think the danger there is after a terrorist strike by a lone wolf, by someone who's self-radicalized, you hear these political calls these knee-jerk calls where this person should be treated as an enemy combatant and sent to Guantanamo. The problem is that person may not be an actual member of a terrorist organization that we have domestic legal authority to use military Even force Even if they, as a lone wolf, sworn allegiance uh, to al-Qaeda, for example, and believe in jihad. That is, you, you've just 
hit on the essence of how the terrorist threat to our nation has evolved over the last eight, 10 years. So in the first term of the Obama administration and in the second term of the Bush administration, we were grappling with a terrorist threat that encompassed individuals who were part of al-Qaeda, al-Shabaab, other organizations who had trained with these organizations, been equipped by these organizations, who had existed in the geographic location with these organizations and had accepted orders, much like a conventional army, by a leader of this organization. Classic example being the 9-11 defendants. And it's easy to, to identify them as soldiers in that effort. Correct. Right. So when you're dealing with a self-radicalized actor, someone who is inspired by something they see on the internet, who may not have ever met a single other individual in the terrorist organization that they ascribe to, I think that model collapses. I think for the self-radicalized actor, civilian law enforcement has to be the, has to be the answer. And then going to the question that you raised about the indefinite nature of certain kinds of conflict like we're in now, we've been at war with al-Qaeda and certain other terrorist organizations coming on 17 years now. And so if a war is going to last forever, is it appropriate to have indefinite detention for people who you're not trying in any fashion? I gave a whole speech on this exact topic. Well, don't do that here. Okay. <laughs> I won't do Give it us here. the headline. Um, November 2012, I gave a speech at the Oxford Union. When will the war against al-Qaeda end? To try to answer this question. And basically what I was saying in that speech was that at some point when al-Qaeda is decimated and no longer able to launch a strategic attack against the U.S., we have to say to ourselves legally and politically that armed conflict that Congress authorized in 2001 is now over. There may be other conflicts going on, but that one's over. And the courts inevitably in these habeas cases are going to have to grapple with whether the conflict against al-Qaeda and associated forces has ended. The U.S. government, I know, the current administration takes the position that it has not ended, and that's something that the courts will resolve. But why, why are any group of politicians, so long as al-Qaeda has some breath, going to say that the conflict is over and as a consequence give up some of the powers that they have under the Well, AUMF. an army can still exist but not be engaged in armed conflict anymore. I'm saying as a political matter. Uh, as a political how matter, difficult is it going to be for people to give up As a political matter, that? it's easy for people to say, oh, the conflict's continuing, the lawyers say it's continuing, and so everything's fine, and the court should go along with this. I think so it's going 17 to be a while. years out, the courts may be a little more skeptical of this. There's been, I think, some trend lines here. In the second Bush term, the courts kind of pushed back on in the first and second Bush terms, the courts kind of pushed back on some of the things the Bush administration did. In their defense, I think that a lot of what they did was novel, and they had to kind of make it up as they went along. By the time we got into office in 2009 in the Obama administration, a lot of the legal groundwork had been set. A lot of the legal limits had been set in this new kind of conflict, and we sought to live within those legal limits. And I think the courts saw that and gave us a fair amount of deference. And so in a lot of these habeas cases brought by Guantanamo detainees, you saw the courts basically denying the applications, siding with the government. I think now we can anticipate a wave of increasing levels of court skepticism almost 17 years after 9-11. For our non-lawyer listeners... Do you mind telling us what you mean when you refer to a habeas petition? Ah, a habeas petition, yes. So a detainee at Guantanamo Bay has a right, as the Supreme Court has held, to challenge his detention, to challenge whether or not he should be legally detained. The vehicle for doing that is a habeas corpus petition, which is a very traditional type of litigation that people have a right to bring against the United States government. So shorthand for that is habeas petition. I want to talk about one more thing relating to the military and who gets to serve and under what conditions. And you mentioned the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and there's now a lot of controversy and discussion about the, the permissibility of service by people who are transgender. Anything about your prior experience inform what you think about the current controversy and issue? 
in 2010, when we were assessing whether we could repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell and permit gays to serve openly in the U.S. military, there was actually a race among all three branches of government to get to the same place. Congress, the Democrats in Congress, while they had the votes in 2010 before the midterms were anxious to repeal the law, Bob Gates, my boss, the Secretary of Defense, when I was general counsel, was saying, no, we got to do this carefully, deliberately, let the study group led by Johnson and General Carter Ham do their assessment, and we'll see what they conclude about whether or not the military can do this. And the courts were getting involved. The courts, after years of deference to the military, 17 years of deference from 1993 to 2010, were now jumping in and taking the position that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was unconstitutional. And so in the midst of our review, we actually were enjoined by a judge in San Francisco from enforcing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But it wasn't just a legal evolution, right? There's an evolution in people's thinking about what thinking tolerance means. Evolution in social attitudes toward this, and frankly, the military had been allowed to exist in a static mindset of 1993 for 17 years. And I actually believe that the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" in December 2010 kind of started a tidal wave of events to advance the civil rights and civil liberties of gays and lesbians in this country. Because very soon after that, you saw gay marriage uh, being authorized and enacted in states. You saw court cases um, striking down DOMA, for example. My law partner, Robbie Kaplan, represented Edith Windsor in in the challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act. So you saw a fairly rapid-fire chain of events after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So social attitudes during that period of time were definitely changing. Well, who would have thought that? You're saying that that the, the, the very traditional and conservative institution of the military was a leading force for social change in America. Well, I, yes and no. Yes and no. In our study that we did to assess whether or not the military could handle repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We did a lot of comparisons to racial integration in the 1940s and 50s. In the 40s and 50s, the military actually was ahead of civilian society in integrating. What was interesting is the chaplain force was encouraging this, and the chaplains in the military were leading the effort to do this. They were really out front. And some of the same arguments against the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell existed against racial integration in almost the exact same words. By 2010, the military was kind of behind the curve in terms of where civilian society was going. But I think that politically, when a lot of people saw that the military could handle this change, you saw things happening in the courts and judges are human beings too. Um, They exist in in society like everybody else. And you saw a lot of a lot of new state laws uh, being enacted. You're an African-American lawyer at the Department of Defense. Did you think of about any of this through the lens of, of prior discrimination and I, racial bias? I, 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 I did, actually. Going into our assessment of whether Don't Ask, Don't Tell could be repealed, I tended to look at it as a civil rights issue, which, frankly didn't resonate all that well in the military community. What did resonate was what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said, Admiral Mike Mullen, which is that this is an issue of integrity and a gay person has to essentially lie about their identity to serve his country, whereas a straight person does not. So it's a matter of integrity, the gay service members and ours, to permit them to serve openly like everybody else so that they can talk about their family, they can talk about their spouse, they can talk about their lives. But that's an odd odd distinction to make between the integrity of the person being able to be true to his or her identity versus a civil rights issue. To me, they're sort of merged and overlapped. When you put it as a matter of integrity and basic fairness, then that resonates much more in the military community, we found. And that's how... My co-chair, General Carter Ham, who was an Army four-star who had been in the Army his whole life, saw it. And it just, I think more people identified with it in that way. So you mentioned a, a man by the name of Barack Obama. Tell us briefly why you supported him and what you thought of him and why you thought he would be a good president. So I met Barack Obama 
in June 2006 at a fundraiser in New Jersey. And we immediately struck up a friendship. And frankly, he did a pretty effective recruitment job on me. (laughs) Um, And I was planning on sitting out the Democratic primaries. I'm a Democrat. But something about Senator Obama inspired me. And on November 22nd, 2006, I still remember the day and I still have the pink message slip. He called my office at Paul Weiss and said, he's thinking about running. Would I support him? And I said, immediately, if you run, I will support you. Was there a message from Hillary Clinton too? (laughs) No, he got to me first. Okay. And just something about the moment told me this is going to be history and you're being invited to participate in history from the ground floor. Can we pause there for a moment and talk about one element of your biography? Um, and that is your grandfather, Charles Johnson. Tell us about your grandfather. My grandfather was a sociologist. He was president of Fisk University, which is a black college in Nashville, Tennessee. And he wrote a lot about civil rights. And when you were a black man in the 40s and 50s, and you were an educator, and you wrote a lot about civil rights during the McCarthy era, you inevitably came under suspicion. So my own grandfather actually in 1949 testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee to deny he was a member of the Communist Party and then went on to give a prepared statement in defense of the patriotism of the American Negro, as he put it then. And he was a forward-thinking person. In 1930, he went to Liberia to investigate allegations of a government-supported underground slave market, which is how I got my name. And Spelled J-E-H. Another way to spell J-A-Y. Which right? a lot of people pronounce as, seem to think it's J. Who, who do you think, whose name do you think is more mispronounced, yours or mine? <laughs> That's a good question, <laughs> but I'll come back to that. So he met somebody in Liberia with the name J-E-H, a member of the indigenous population who he re- admired and respected. And so the next year, 1931, my grandfather gave the name to my father at a time when African-Americans were not celebrating their African heritage. Now we, now we do. So my grandfather gave the name to my father, who gave the name to me, and I gave it to my son. So as far as I know, there are three J. Johnsons in the world. What's interesting, if you put the name J-A-Y Johnson into Google, it'll ask you, do you really mean J. Johnson or J.E.H. Johnson with this Wikipedia entry here? So the name is becoming more and more conventional. The algorithm kind of works. <laughs> right. How far back an ancestor of yours was born into slavery? My great-grandfather, Charles S. Johnson's father, Reverend Charles H. Johnson, was born a slave in 1860 in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was emancipated when he was three years old and traveled to Bristol, Virginia, after getting a college degree at Virginia Union, founded a church in 1890, which is still there, and pastored that church for 42 years. So he was an emancipated slave. So, so you now tell, you're in, I, I, I traced my family history. So now you're in 2006. You receive a call from a young African-American senator who has... Who also has, with an African first name. Also with an African first name, also mispronounced frequently, not anymore, who... Uh, has designs on the presidency of the United States of America. What did you think at that moment about... Something told me, maybe it was my experience as an African-American, maybe it was my training and experience at Morehouse College, where Dr. King went 30 years before me. Something told me, this is going to be history, and you're being invited to get in on the ground floor, get on board. And it was a terrific experience. I canvassed in places like Des Moines, Iowa, and West Philadelphia, I was a member of his national security advisory team. I was a delegate to the convention. I was a lawyer for the campaign. And then when he was elected, I was part of his transition team and then part of his administration. So you were, as we discussed, you did your job as general counsel of the Department of Defense. Came back to my law firm, Paul Weiss, expecting I was done. and A lot fewer than 11,000 lawyers. Just right. a, a few hundred. And um, then eight months later, he asked me if I would return to his administration as um, Secretary of Homeland Security. How hard a job is that? It's a very hard job for a number of reasons. The Secretary of Homeland Security is on defense. You're always on defense. You're on the defensive team. You're blocking and tackling in a variety of contexts, border security, 
aviation security, maritime security, cybersecurity, port security, the physical security of our nation's leaders, response to natural disasters through FEMA. It's the third largest department of our government, but by far the most decentralized with 22 different components that were all stitched together in 2002 after 9-11. And frankly, DHS Homeland Security is still a work in progress. Is it too hard? Is it is it too unwieldy? I mean, as you just mentioned, it was you stitched together twenty two different agencies, yes, put them right. under one roof, so to speak. Well, most of those functions existed already right. in various different parts of the government. So, what was the gain? Out what was among, the gain in putting them together? The gain of putting them together was you have now one cabinet level official who's looking at all the different threat streams directed against the homeland and can allocate resources accordingly, which I think is a good thing. Where I believe DHS is a work in progress is there's very little middle-level management. And so the Secretary of Homeland Security has a lot of direct reports. And because it's a job on defense where 10,000 successes equals one failure, right? that makes the job so difficult. When you talk about components, among the components are the Secret Service? Yes. And which, what, what else? Secret Service, FEMA, Immigration, Customs Enforcement, Citizenship and Immigration Services, Customs and Border Protection, which, by the way, is itself the largest federal law enforcement agency of our government. Um, And maybe getting larger. TSA, which we all know about and love, TSA. (laughs) And uh, Homeland Security Investigations, which I'm sure you're familiar with. We worked a lot with ICE. And I could go on and on. So a lot of agencies, a a lot lot of of responsibilities. I want to ask you, if I might, about some issues that are front and center in the country now through the lens of your experience at Homeland Security. A lot of those issues, um, actually a lot of the issues you've worked on throughout your life, including at the Department of Defense, continue to be in the headlines and are important. So you mentioned borders and border agents. Mm -hmm. The administration, as we speak, has been spending a lot of time talking about the border. How important is border security? Is it not essential as the president says, that we need to Well, of make course sure you have, have to have border security. We don't have open borders. We're a sovereign nation. We don't have open borders. Now, in my judgment, there are effective, efficient ways to go about border security, particularly when you have a 2,000-mile-long border across our southern border that is all sorts of different terrains. And so how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> first point, illegal migration is a fraction of what it used to be. The high was 17, 18 years ago when we had 1.6 million people apprehended on our southern border. Today, and for the last several years, it's a fraction of that. Last year was about 303,000, last fiscal year. My second year in office was 331,000. But should we be aspiring to zero? You you can't have zero. Um, You can aspire to zero, but you can't have zero. It's just a fact. Um, just like you can't have a crime rate of zero in a major city. You right. just, But you can't also – at the same time, you don't want to be fatalistic. But anyway, it's a fraction of what it used to be because of several reasons. One, the economy in Mexico is a lot better than it used to be. Bad economy is a push factor in illegal migration. Two, the investments we made in the Bush, Clinton, and Obama years in border security. And what do I mean by border security? We have built a fence – in all the places where it makes sense to have a fence. The southern border consists of desert, mountains, the Rio Grande, which is a very windy river in Texas. And so we built a fence in the places where it makes sense to have a fence. Barack Obama built a fence. The Bush, Clinton, and Obama administrations built a fence. But you have to ask yourself, how much sense does it make to build a 10-foot wall on top of a 10,000-foot mountain? If somebody's motivated enough to climb a 10,000-foot mountain, they're going to figure out a way to get over the 10-foot wall. Right. So also. experts like you, just I just want to sort of break but it down. But in addition to that, yeah. surveillance, vehicles, um, mobile surveillance, if you ask a border security expert, those are the things they tell you that they need more of. Lights, roads, vehicles uh, to go where the surges in illegal migration occur on our southern border. We've made a lot of investments in that. The numbers are going down. There's always more to do. But just simply building a wall for the sake of building a wall is not a wise investment in taxpayer money. It's not efficient and it's not effective. No, and- it's it's a it's a good bumper sticker. It's a good rallying cry, but it's not the wisest, most effective way to invest taxpayer money in border security. Could you tell people why 
we should be concerned about the idea of sending our military to to guard the border in a in peacetime. Well, send the military to the border it sounds great, but let's step back for a minute and think about this for just maybe five seconds. There is a law against a phrase you will know, a posse comitatus. Yes. The U.S. military, and this is what makes the U.S. military, I think, this is one of the reasons why I think our military is one of the more revered institutions in America, because we keep it cabined. The U.S. military is not allowed to serve in civilian law enforcement roles, unlike other nations where you see military on the streets. And that has been true since 1878, since after the Civil War, and it's part of our culture and our heritage. And so when you talk about sending guard to the borders, the most they can do is support. They can't serve in direct border security roles. You know, you have this image of military in uniform standing at the Rio Grande with bayonets and rifles. They can't do that. And you don't want untrained guard personnel engaging in the apprehension of women and children. So the most they can do is support. The bottleneck in the whole system is the are the immigration courts. If you really wanted to expedite the removal of people to serve as a deterrent to illegal migration, we'd be hiring way more immigration judges. The backlog, as President Trump himself has pointed out, the backlog in immigration court is huge. And there are far too few immigration judges to handle those cases. So inevitably, a lot of people come to the southern border. They frankly assume or are not surprised when they're apprehended. And then they go into a immigration court system that takes years to litigate. What about the travel ban? And statements that the president, current president, made about not letting in people who were Muslim, uh, and then modified that bit by bit over over time. How bad a policy is that? Two years ago, two years ago, it would have been unheard of for the courts to be regulating and second-guessing who the president and the secretary of Homeland Security say should be allowed to enter this country. Traditionally, the judicial branch gives a lot of deference to the executive branch when it comes to regulating our borders. But bad facts make bad law. So when you have a candidate for president who, in December 2015, calls for a complete ban on a certain kind of immigration based on someone's religion, you see the courts reacting to that. How about interference with our election uh, through... We could go on and on, yeah. couldn't we? <laughs> there's, so right. Many, right. there's so many things. Um, sorry to make you relive all of this. Should we have done more before uh, this president took office? Everybody asked me that question. I know. Um, so with the benefit of hindsight, and hindsight is brilliant, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, you ask the question, well, should we have done more to deter the Russian government? Well, if you believe our intelligence chiefs, the answer has to be yes, because if you believe our intelligence leaders, they're saying that the Russians are still at it in terms of their attempts to influence our democracy, and we're now in the midst of the 2018 election. And you believe them? Well, I have to believe them, well, yes. No, I don't, they're our intelligence <laughs> you, chiefs. You, you, I have to believe them. You say them. you have to believe them. And but, I no longer have access to the intelligence myself, but, so but I have the president of the United States. Well, well I asked, it's, it's not a question that I think one would have to ask in the past, but this president denigrates the intelligence community on a regular basis. Um, and he doesn't take the view that you have to believe them. And he still isn't off. Our intelligence community, when you're in a national security job, whether it's Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary of Defense, or even President of the United States, our intelligence community and their analysis are your eyes and ears. If you don't believe them, if you don't pay attention to it, you're flying blind. And so... If you believe what our intelligence experts are telling us, the Russians have not been deterred. Now, getting back to your question, when somebody asks me, should we have done more, I really have to take us back to the circumstances that existed in 2016 and what's, what we were wrestling with at the time. And at the time, we had clear intelligence by late summer, early fall, that the Russians were attempting to interfere in the 2016 election. And the question becomes, what do we do about it? And we were in the midst of a very heated campaign where one of the candidates, candidate Trump, was saying that the outcome was going to be rigged. The president and 
the national security components of our government were very concerned about jumping into this and being perceived as somehow trying to tilt the election to Hillary Clinton. Plus, there was a school of thought around the table in the Situation Room that even by making attribution and taking action, we're playing into the Russian government hands by undermining the credibility of the democratic process. And so we came out with the conclusion that we had to tell the American public and we had to make attribution. And that was in a statement that the Director of National Intelligence and I issued on October 7th, 2016. Something else happened that day. What else happened? Yes, that's correct. The statement did not get the attention that I thought it would get because it was the same day as the release of the so-called Access Hollywood video. And so the public's attention was all drawn to another corner of the pasture. All the press, all the cattle went off to cover sex and greed and lust. And the speculation over the next several days was Trump can't survive this. He's getting out. What's going to happen at the debate on Sunday? And there was actually very little follow-up about the statement Jim Clapper and I made until December, after the election, when the press sort of woke up and said, hey, wow, the Russians interfered with our election. I said, well, yes, we told you that two months before. And so very often in public life, and I suspect you know this too, Preet, people will say to you, well, why didn't you warn us about this? Or why didn't you talk more about this? And you'd say, well, I, I have talked about it. You just, the press hasn't covered it. And sometimes in Washington in particular, you have to say something 17, 18 times for anybody or, will listen. Or say something crazy. <laughs> or say it in very colorful terms. How much? How important is presidential leadership in protecting the country? And the reason I ask is you're, you're talking about the election, and it makes me think about the future and what's going to happen in the next election and how we're not prepared. And one thing that's absent from all this discussion, even though you have sometimes cabinet-level officials and, and other people in the government warning about it, you know, in high decibel tones from time to time on, on the Hill and elsewhere, but you don't hear the president talking about it. And I speculate that that's because he doesn't want to you know, focus any attention on future Russian interference in the election because it puts a spotlight on the past election and it, in his mind, undermines, uh, the, you know, the, the credibility of his election. Well, I right. think that's exactly right. But does it matter? Yeah. Do, you know, if, if you have responsible people like Jay Johnson and others, if you believe that they're there in the current government, does it matter that the president is not asserting leadership or not? I'll give you an analogy that I know you will appreciate. The government, national security components of our government are a lot like a U.S. attorney's office. If there's no Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney in the chair at 1 St. Andrews Plaza, you and I both know the work of that U.S. attorney's office will go on. Indictments will be brought. Cases will be tried. Convictions will be obtained. Grand jury investigations will continue. But without the strategic leadership to set priorities, to mobilize people, to motivate people, um, to focus overall policy direction in a certain way. And inevitably, the president is by far the most visible person in the U.S. government and in the country. Everything the president says, every word the president says, every tweet the president issues is covered intensely. And so the president has the ability to set the agenda and focus people's thinking in a certain way and mobilize public opinion. And so the Treasury Department can issue sanctions. The outgoing national security advisor can make very forceful speeches about the Russian threat. But inevitably, it it comes back to the president, the commander-in-chief, to set the tone, make the visible statements that the Russian government will hear and take heed of. Does it make you um, upset or angry on a personal level, given how closely you worked with the intelligence agencies when the president denigrates them? Well, I find it, I have a difficult time getting my head around a president, any president, who denigrates institutions of his own government to the American people, whether it's the intelligence community, the FBI, the Department of Justice. I I just have a hard time understanding why that is a good idea. I came to understand 
when I was Secretary of Homeland Security that the intelligence community is your they're your eyes and ears. The first thing I'd do every morning when I came to work at 6.30, I'd walk in and there'd be an intelligence book, which includes the PDB, sitting on my desk waiting for me. My Presidential military, daily brief. The military puts it there at 6 a.m. I'm there by 6.30. It's sitting there waiting for me in my secure office. And before I even read the newspapers, I'd read the intelligence reports to know what today's threat streams are to the homeland. And I'd also, it, also have the apprehension numbers on the southern border from the night before. If I had time after going through it and discussing it with my staff, I'd read the newspapers. That's how important the intelligence is. And as I said, unless you consume it, and that was the most important part of my day. Right. And unless you consume it, you're flying blind. How do you think John Kelly is doing as chief of staff? Well, I know John Kelly from when he was the military aide to the Secretary of Defense and I was the general counsel. And we have remained friends. When I was Secretary of Homeland Security, he was commander of U.S. Southern Command. I applauded when he became Secretary of Homeland Security. I told our workforce, you will greet him as a person of honor and integrity. As a liberator. And uh, uh, I predicted that, and I think that's what happened. The job of chief of staff, even in normal circumstances, is the most difficult job in the U.S. government. Number one. Number one. The most difficult job in the U.S. government. Do you think um, he handled the security clearance issue within the White House appropriately from what you know publicly? No comment. Okay. But you go to the last question. So there's a popular television show that I have not watched, but I'm told it's popular, called Designated Survivor. Yes. Could you, could you explain to folks... It's what, not all it's cracked up it's to not, be. Well, explain to folks what that is. Not nearly as glamorous as it's <laughs> made out to be well, on Well, it depends on what, you know, it depends on if things go wrong or not. And how you had experience in being the designated survivor Two among times. the cabinet. Two times. Okay. Two times. So tell us quickly about that. State and, of the Union 2016. Make it, make it glamorous. <laughs> State of the Union 2016, and then Inauguration Day 2017. So when everyone in the line of succession, the presidential line of succession, gathers in one place, somebody has to absent themselves in case of catastrophe. I really enjoyed going to the State of the Union addresses. You know, and you're on the House floor. First time I walked onto the House floor for State of the Union, I couldn't believe I was there. Wave to mom on C-SPAN. Every branch of government there is there. The Supreme Court's there. The chiefs are there. Everyone in Congress is there. It's exciting. Everyone's so, got a blue tie or a red tie on. 2016, I got the short straw. Johnson, you're the designated survivor. So you have to go, I had to go off to my undisclosed location. Can you tell, is it in, is it in Washington? Is it in some other uh, state? It's an undisclosed location. The nice thing about it is you get to bring the White House chef with you. It cooks, and cooks you a meal, personally. It cooks a meal. And then when the president's back in the residence, you get to go home. Do you get to watch the, the speech on of television? Course, yeah. Okay. Sit there on a big flat screen TV and watch it. So I figured, okay, I've done it once. This is it. But I got the duty a second time, and that was on Inauguration Day. On Inauguration Day, it's fundamentally different because everyone in the cabinet is resigning. And so I had to literally hold over into the Trump administration as a designated survivor. This time, the location was not a big secret. It was my house in Montclair, New Jersey. I just came home a day How early. How come it didn't have to be secret then? Don't ask me. I okay. don't know. And so... I was the designated survivor again, except I held over for seven and a half hours into the Trump administration when John Kelly, my successor, was confirmed. So you you were the Secretary of Homeland Security under Donald Trump? I'm Donald Trump's first Senate-confirmed cabinet officer and, therefore, the first cabinet officer in his administration to resign. Now, what's interesting is no presidency with the name Johnson begins well, (laughs) and obviously no one considered the fact that if I had become president, it would have been the result of my own failure to secure the inauguration. You know, how, ir- how ironic. How ironic. Secretary Johnson, thank you so much for Reed, being with us. It's been a pleasure talking Re- with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. So at the end of the show, I frequently talk about something that has moved me and inspired me in the news. And frequently, it's about some young person or a group of young people who are going against the grain, doing something difficult to make the world better or to make the world less hateful 
or to bring about some positive change in their community or in their state. And so one thing I'm very excited about that I'm organizing through CAFE is an event on April 26th called the CAFE Change Summit, oriented around this very simple principle, this idea of taking action, of inspiring thoughtful action. And one of the things I hope to do is to highlight people, and we've identified 100, who I think are some of the most exciting change makers in the country. They're amazing people who I hope to introduce to you over the podcast in the days and weeks following the event. Let me give you an example of some of these people. There's Jessica Matthews, the founder of Uncharted Power, who invented something called a socket, which is an energy-generating soccer ball at age 19 and is now developing other creative ways to use kinetic energy as a renewable power source. Or how about Emma Yang, who at age 13 developed her own app called Timeless to help patients with Alzheimer's stay engaged with their families. There's also Alejandro Gak Artigas, a teacher turned entrepreneur who is committed to closing the literacy gap through a collective that works with teachers, family members, and kids. The goal is to place more focus on the people who are doing more than just talking. We'll also have some people who you're familiar with from the podcast who are talking about how they made change or stood up to authoritarianism. People like Gary Kasparov and Bill Browder, people who have fought for civil rights like Vanita Gupta. So I'm really excited to be talking to these people, learning from these people, introducing them to you over the coming weeks here uh, on the podcast and online. And I also hope for you listening that you'll help bring to my attention people in your community or in your state, in the country, who are doing something to make the world better. There's so much negative out there. There's so much hate. There's so much discussion about how we're going down the drain. Um, I like to associate myself, like I am with the Democracy Task Force, with Christy Todd Whitman, and now the summit, with people who are trying to do something positive. They're not just lamenting bad things happening in the country, and there's no doubt there are bad things happening in the country, but I choose to spend my time with people who are hopeful and want to make a change and a difference because that's the way we're going to come out of this better. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, former DHS Secretary Jay Johnson. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics, and we're going to be doing a show coming up focusing on big picture questions, not the news of the week, but stepping back to look at how things work or should work with investigations and the law. Send us your questions with the hashtag AskPreet. I'll be giving away tickets to five lucky listeners for our live show April 26th in New York City at the historic Apollo Theater to people who tweet me questions. Remember to use the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.